And any kindergarten or first grade children may be dismissed to Children's Church. But the rest of you open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's on page 192 in your Pew Bible. If you're using a Pew Bible, Deuteronomy 22, page 192. Christians must be liberal. Christians must not be conservative. And I pray that South Shore Baptist Church will become a much more liberal church. Maybe I should explain that. Um, (laughs) Let me tell you what I don't mean. I'm not at all talking politics. I'm not referring to Republican or Democrat or Tea Party or Libertarian. I'm not talking about... Uh, debates over the extent to which government should or should not be involved in dealing with social issues. Um, And when I say that we should be liberal and not conservative, I'm not uh, talking about um, theology either. You know, sometimes you hear the phrase liberal Christianity, and it refers uh, to a sort of theological approach that minimizes the Bible's authority over what we believe and is willing to kind of paint outside the lines of classic historic Christian orthodoxy. I'm not talking about that. Um, And when I say that we need to be liberal, not conservative, I'm not uh, speaking about liberalism in a moral sense. You know, sometimes the word liberal is used to describe somebody who is free-spirited morally, who who does what they want. Uh, You know, you may have heard of the idea of someone who's a libertine, someone who uh, just does what they'll do and it doesn't matter what it is and there's no moral constraints to them. I'm not talking about that either. What I mean is the word liberal in a kind of basic, perhaps forgotten sense of of being open-handed and open-hearted and generous, giving and and forgiving. Not so much a political philosophy or, or theology, but more just a way of life and a way of relating to other people. Liberal in the kind of basic sense of generosity of spirit toward others. Um, And when I say we shouldn't be conservative, I'm, again, using that word conservative in a kind of rudimentary sense of conserving, pulling back, clamping down, stuffing, being stingy, being tight, holding back for oneself. And I'm saying that as Christians, that shouldn't mark the way that we relate to each other. Uh, So as we look this morning in Deuteronomy, here we are near the end of Deuteronomy, getting near the end of this book. We're in this section, Deuteronomy chapter 22 to 26. And uh, frankly, these four chapters have presented a bit of a preaching dilemma for me. I haven't been sure how to preach it uh, in the sense that what you have in these chapters is kind of a potpourri of different laws there's just all kinds of laws at this point. It's, it's not like there's one chapter dedicated to this topic and then another chapter dedicated to this topic. It's like a whole bunch of laws that are just kind of mixed together. It reads a little bit like the book of Proverbs, the end of Deuteronomy here. Like if you ever uh, you know, studied Proverbs, there isn't sort of one theme over a whole chapter. It's lots of different Proverbs. 
Or it kind of feels a little bit like the end of one of the Apostle Paul's letters. I don't know if you're familiar with some of Paul's writings, but he'll get to the end of his letter, and then it's almost like at the very end he has to say all the different things that he hasn't said so far, but he wants to get them in. So he starts giving commandments. Oh, and do this, and be sure to do that, and make sure you don't do this. Kind of like a parent uh, you know, sending their kid off to college. Oh, remember to, remember to do this, and do that, and don't forget... And so Paul ends his letters that way with a sort of paranesis at the end. Lots of little different commandments. That's how I feel like Deuteronomy 22 to 26 is. So I wonder, like, you know, what's the best way to get at preaching this? So what I'm going to attempt to do for these four chapters is rather than just kind of plodding through them verse to verse, I'd like to take the next couple Sundays to pick some, some major themes, some major threads that run through these chapters and then take verses that are sort of pearls on that thread that, that identify that thread and just look at them so that when you read these chapters, you'll be familiar with the themes in it and you'll be able to say, oh yeah, that's one of those verses that kind of has to do with that particular idea. And all that to say, one of those themes is a certain biblical liberalism that God wants his people to practice in relationship to one another. And so let's look at the text uh, that I picked out four texts I want to look at with you this morning. Four, think of like four mini-sermons. All different, different topics, but all on this theme of a generosity of spirit and treatment of one another. And I want to attach a, an adjective to each of these four texts, an adjective modding, modifying the word liberal, to, to kind of map out the textures of what this biblical liberalism looks like. And the first one is Deuteronomy 22, 1-4. And I want us to look here at the idea of proactive liberalism, proactive liberality. Look at 22, 1 to 4. It says, if you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. If the brother does not live near you, or if you do not know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen on the ground, do not ignore it. Help him get it to its feet. So here we have, a, again, a proactive liberalism. This idea that, that it's meeting the needs of others but taking the initiative to do it. Right. So you're walking along, you're an Israelite, you're going down the road, and there wandering across the road is your neighbor's ox or donkey or I don't know how they identified them. I don't know if they branded them back then, but somehow you know it belongs to your neighbor. Maybe you know it's your neighbor's because it keeps getting out. And it's like, well, I want this guy to fix his fence. And so there's the cow, you know, wandering there. And the idea is don't ignore it. Literally, the Hebrew is don't hide yourself. Don't pretend you didn't see it. You know, it's like there's the, the, the cow and you're busy. You've got things to do. And you could just see the guy looking at the cow and then looking around does anyone see me? No one sees me. You know what? I'll just pretend I didn't see that cow. That's somebody else's problem. You know, it's that idea that it's someone else's issue. Let someone else deal with it. Even though it's right here in front of me, someone else can handle that. I'm just going to go on my way. And the command here is don't you know, take your time, take your, your precious time and energy to go out of your way to help, you know, bring the donkey back. Or if you don't know whose it is, it's not finders keepers. Just hold on to it. Take care of it, feed it, and trust that maybe God will bring the owner to you someday if you don't know who it is. Maybe it's a a mule from three towns down the road. You're not sure who owns it. But whatever. Just go out of your way. Take action 
and be proactive. Don't play dumb. Don't play blind. Don't sit back and trust that somebody else out there is going to be the one to deal with the issue that's right under your nose. When I read about this kind of uh, this idea, I, I couldn't help but thinking in the New Testament of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know that perhaps most famous of all the parables that Jesus told, one of the most famous. You know the, the parable where the, the guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho in the, in the story and uh, some robbers jump him and they mug him and they beat him and they leave him in the ditch. And, uh, and then these characters come walking by the poor guy in the ditch and all of them are sort of you know, elite uh, Jewish religious leaders. And all of them kind of walk by the guy and they, you know, play dumb. Like they pretend they don't see him. They ignore him. They hide themselves from him. And they sort of look the other way like, you know, I can't see this guy. I've got to get someplace. I don't want to touch him. He might be ceremonial unclean. Who knows why they won't touch the poor guy. But they all go by one after another. And then finally the Good Samaritan comes, which would have been a shocking twist for Jesus' audience because Samaritans, if you're familiar with that ancient world, were uh, despised by the Jews as sort of, half-breeds, sort of Jewish Gentile mongrels. They they were despised by the Jews as those who had distorted sort of classic um, Jewish religion and faith. And so here's the the Samaritan, the the anti-hero, who sees the guy in the ditch and he tends the guy's wounds and puts him on a donkey and brings him to the inn and... Um, you know, funds his convalescence. He says, look, just here's the money. I'll pay you back. Just take care of this guy. Heal him. And Jesus asks that penetrating question, who was the neighbor to the man who was hurt? And it's the guy who got off his donkey and was proactive. He did something about the need. N- not all the needs everywhere, because none of us is God. We can't meet all needs everywhere. But the things like just starting with right in front of us to take action and to meet that need. A proactive kind of liberalism. I think that's really important for us as a church to, to remember that, especially I was thinking, especially as we grow as a church. You know, we have this new building. Yay, it's going to be opening soon. I really can't wait. It's going to be awesome. And, and with that, our church may potentially grow in size in terms of numbers. And, and, you know, a larger church is a different kind of animal than a smaller church. It's not better or worse. It's just kind of different. You have to just do some different things in it. And one of the things you have to do is, is to make a, a larger church function well. You have to have more systems. You have to have more strategic ways of doing things. That, for instance, how do you welcome a new person into a church? When the church has 50 people, it's pretty easy. <laughs> everybody knows everybody. And then some new family walks in, you know, and, and they, they sit down and they're looking around and everybody in the room knows who's new. And if the church, you know, anyone can walk up to that person and be like, hi, you're obviously new here because, you know, the other 50 of us are all related and we're really glad you're here. <laughs> Welcome. Like, how do you do that in a larger church? Well, you have to have strategies. You have to have a greeting ministry. You have to have a welcome card, you know, that people sign and then you can give an email or a hello. You have to be more strategic. You might even have to hire staff. Like, you know, like we did with Godwin to say, hey, not Godwin, would you please welcome all the people for us? But, but Godwin, could you help lead us in a more organized, intentional manner so that that organic one-on-one thing can be more likely to happen? So, so that's the idea behind it. You just have to do that in a larger church. It's, it's just the nature of the beast. But there's dangers to it. 
probably more than I'm thinking of, but just one I'm thinking of particularly, one of the dangers is is that I can then assume it's not my responsibility to be welcoming <laughs> because I'm not on the greeting team. And guess what? I'm not even the pastor in charge of the greeting team. That's the other pastor. Oh, that's not my problem. <laughs> no, look, we've got to be proactive. It, it's, we're, we are the church. And you, you have systems and programs and strategies, but if we're not being the church, the whole thing is a house of cards. All of us have to be the church and, God, and Christ's body to whoever God puts in front of us for whatever the need is. So if I'm in the lobby, in the new beautiful lobby that we'll hopefully see in a month, and I see the person in the corner who's acting so new, they're doing the new person dance, you know, with their cup of coffee, just kind of, you know, pretending like they're not out of place, but you can just tell that obviously they're so out of place. You know, I, I, I don't think like, wow, I sure hope Godwin finds that person. You know, <laughs> it's like... I need to go out and be like, hey, are you new? You know, and, and welcome them and whatever I can do right there. Oh, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And just to show hospitality and kindness. And, and we all have to have that proactive liberalism. If, if you know someone's in the hospital in our church family, don't... I mean, we all know Seth is omniscient and omnipresent. Pastor Seth is in all hospital rooms everywhere, visiting everyone simultaneously. But... Uh, you know, should it be his day off and he can't do that? Like, if you know about somebody in the hospital, like, you can go visit them. We can all do that as a body for each other. I mean, that's what really creates a church family, is when the whole body takes little steps, does little pieces and parts as we all work together, being proactive with the needs, especially those that are just like right under our noses that we, that we know about, instead of assuming somebody else will do it, some other ministry will do it. Like, yeah, maybe there are other ministries that need to do it, but we need to do it too, individually. Or if you know somebody who uh, is kind of the new to the faith and they have questions and uh, or they're trying to figure some things out in the Bible, you know, don't, don't say, wow, those are some good questions. Why don't you go talk to so-and-so? I'm telling you, some of you folks here, you have heard so many sermons in your life. It might be scary to try to count them up. How many Bible studies have you been to? How many Sunday school classes have you been to? How many times have you read through the Bible? I think you'd be surprised at how much you know. If, if you just had to be sat down and someone started asking questions, I think you'd be amazed at how much would start coming out of your heads and out of your hearts that you already know from God's Word. Um, more than many people, really. And it's a bit, very biblically literate congregation in, in some ways. And so I, you know, use that. You know, you can sit down with someone over a cup of coffee and say, hey, I haven't been to seminary, but I, I could try to help you with the Bible or just understanding things about the Lord and about the gospel. You could do that. So, so whatever our church becomes, let's make sure that we are proactive in our liberalism, that we see needs and we, if it's right there, especially in front of us, we take an action to meet the need and to do our little part in, in being Christ's body to another person. Because wasn't the Lord proactive with us? The Lord Jesus loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait. God took the initiative. God subdued the enemies, us, and brought us over. And so the, the whole gospel message is of a proactive God who breaks into a hopeless situation because of His own initiative. And so we embody the gospel when we display a proactive generosity and care for each other. But let's go on. Here's the second one. Deuteronomy 23, 
verses 15 to 16. Again, just want to show you a few of these pearls on the string. Hopefully, if you read through these chapters on your own, you'll find other pearls that are on the same string. But here's another one. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. So not only do we need a protective liberality, uh, you might say from this verse that we need a, a rather a proactive liberality. We also need a protective liberality. Here's this image of a slave on the run, a runaway slave running from his master. He comes to Israel and it seems it's not completely explicit, but it seems implicit in the language that the situation here is of a slave from another country running to Israel. Because, you know, it says, let him live among you. And it seems to imply that he wasn't among you before. It's sort of someone coming in who wants to be among you. Let him live in whatever town he chooses. So, so it seems to be that the, the situation in, envisioned is a runaway slave from one of the countries around Israel. Maybe a slave from Philistia. Maybe a slave from Assyria. Maybe a slave from Moab or Edom. Wherever. But they've come to Israel seeking asylum. And here's this remarkable teaching. Don't hand him over to his master. Let him live wherever he wants. Don't oppress him. Don't, don't treat him poorly. It'd be easy to take advantage of a runaway slave. Don't do it, though. Just treat him like a, a, a citizen there. Now, that's a radical commandment for two reasons. One is that slaves, by definition, were considered property. So here's the property of another according to some law who's now not being returned. So, so if an ox comes onto your property, take him back to his owner. But if a human being who's a slave comes on to the property of Israel, don't take him back. Protect it. Guard it. Shield it. Because people are different than animals. People are not property. People are made in God's image. And so there's a kind of protective generosity and liberality here to the runaway slave. Not only that, but this, this commandment here would have really put Israel on bad terms with all the nations around them. Because, like, you won't even return slaves? How can we have a treaty with you if there's not even any extradition understanding for runaway slaves? And it's like, no, not going to happen. And so this would, really would have put Israel in, in a bad sort of posture toward the surrounding nations. And maybe that was God's plan. Maybe we have all these laws where Israel is not to mix it up with the religion and culture of these other pagan nations around Israel. But here it is. Give refuge to the runaway slave. I, I couldn't help when I read that verse to think in the New Testament. Apostle Paul wrote the epistle of Philemon. I don't know if you ever read Philemon. New Testament book. Read it this afternoon. It'll take you probably two minutes and 35 seconds. It's super short. And it's a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote, to this Christian named Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who ran away in the sort of Roman slavery fashion. This slave named Onesimus ran away. In God's providence, the slave bumps into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul preaches Christ to him. The slave Onesimus is saved. And now Paul says, okay, guess what? You're going back. <laughs> You're going back to Philemon. So, so in the Old Testament, you don't send the slave back, but Paul does send the slave back. You go, what's going on? Well, it's not the same, though. It's not just go back to your master, but it's go back to your master now as a brother. And so Paul gives Onesimus this letter. And this letter, you know, one of the main messages is, hey, welcome Onesimus back. He's now useful. He's now a brother. 
in the Lord. And so even though there are all these social and societal structures and hierarchical relationships in society, when they come into the church, suddenly a slave and a master are brothers before the Lord. They've, they've come to the level ground at the foot of the cross. And it, it changes the way they're to relate to each other. So in some sense, even though he's going back to his master, he's also going back, ironically, to the church within the protection, the protective liberality of the church. So that the slave is with his master, but it's different now. Everything's changed because of the gospel and how it's changing relationships between people within the family of God. <clears throat> so, you, you know, we need to be people, we need to be a church that extends that protective generosity to others. You know, am I a Christian that, that extends this protective liberality? The people who are hurting and who are running and who are in, in a tough spot, are they drawn to me because of my faith? Or are they repelled from me because of my faith? Do they say Jeremy's faith makes him more safe? Or does Jeremy's faith make him less safe in some ways because of how they see Christ in me or not? Um, you, you know, do we, do we say through our actions and the way we treat other people that this is safe haven for those on the run. I'm thinking about this new building again and we're going to be moving in here. And I have to tell you, the new sanctuary, I, it's just really, really beautiful. I don't know any other way to say it. Architecturally, it is a beautiful thing. I love architecture. I love this room too. I mean, they kind of messed it up with these walls and stuff. But this room is really pretty. But man, that, this new building is so pretty. It's just, you know, it's clean and it's new and it's crisp and it's interesting and the lines and the architecture. And, and I can't wait for you guys to see it. I was in there with our, uh, our youth director, Pete, uh, Big Pete DeAngelis, and he was standing there and he said, man, I could just spend all day just standing in here. I was like, I know, it's a beautiful space. But what happens when we get into our new beautiful building and people who aren't beautiful start coming into the new beautiful building? And when I say not beautiful, I'm not at all really referring to outward appearance. I'm talking about our lives, broken, messed up. When people come into our church because they're on the run from whatever, <laughs> maybe on the run from brokenness and disaster, maybe on the run because of their own sinful decisions and choices that they're in a disaster that they created themselves. They're running from their own life and their own sin and their own, you know, failed whatever. And they come into our church. Will they find a protective liberality? Will they find a message that says, yes, this is a safe haven in this place? If you think about it, you could describe the gospel this way, that the gospel is a message of hope for runaway slaves. You know, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a what? A slave to sin. Sin is slavery. And so every person who's come to faith in Christ has at some point by God's grace come to realize I'm a slave to sin who cannot free myself. And we came to Jesus not with a report card saying, hey, look at me. I'm pretty awesome, huh? You know? Welcome me into the kingdom of God. I really belong here. Look at my credentials. No. Every true Christian, if you're really saved, you have at some point in your life come to Jesus saying, 
I'm a runaway slave. I, I need to be saved from myself, from the wrath of God, from the devil, from all my past. Lord Jesus, would you rescue and have mercy on a runaway slave like me? And, and if you've never really come to Christ that way, you're not a Christian because you still think you're okay. But when you come to recognize your own depravity, he's like, I need a Savior. I don't just need a guide or a tutor. I need a Savior. And we come to Christ and He welcomes us into the kingdom of God, the beautiful, pristine, new kingdom of God. And so maybe in some ways, broken people coming into the new building, building is a kind of visual parable of what the gospel is all about. Broken people coming into the new kingdom of God, into a new space. This is our message. And so may we grow extending a proactive liberality. May we grow in learning how to uh, live out a protective liberality that welcomes people into the kingdom of God who really have no right to be there like us. Here's number three. An ennobling liberality. I tried to find another P word just to keep that proactive, protective, eh, ennobling. Uh, and by en- ennobling, E-N-N, ennobling, to make noble. Uh, a kind of liberality that uh, imparts dignity and honor to somebody. That sense of ennoble. Um, look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 to 13. Israel was to treat each other in a way that uh, honored one another, even in the difficult situations. Look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 to 13. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into his house to get what he is offering as a pledge. Stay outside and let the man to whom you're making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, do not sleep with his pledge in your possession. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of your God. What an interesting little law. So if you loan somebody something and they give you a pledge, don't go into their house to get the pledge. Now, when you hear loans, you've got to put out of your mind all of our modern banking system. That's not what it was at all. There were no big banks, no home loans, no business loans. That's not how it was. Loaning in the ancient world in Israel was very much person to person. And the reason you went for a loan was not because you're trying to start a new restaurant. It's just because you were hard up. So, you'd go, so it's more like, like a friend coming to you saying, I can't make ends meet. This happened, that happened. You know, here's this, there's, always, there's always a story, right? This is my story. Could you help me? You know, and with, with their hand out. It's that kind of loaning. And it's interesting because the Deuteronomy is very clear that Israelites were not to charge interest to other Israelites. They were to just lend and not try to get something out of it via interest. But here's this other thing, though. The other person could give something in pledge, sort of like, I'll pay back the loan, and here's you know, a silver goblet that my grandmother gave me, and this is the pledge that I'll pay back the loan, or something like that, you know, some kind of system like that. But he, and then the law says, if someone's giving you the pledge, you can't just march into their house, knock their door open, and say, all right, I'm taking this. This is my pledge. You gave it to me and, and go out with it. No, no. Wait in the street. Ask the man to go into the house and get it and wait for him to come out. Isn't that a funny little law? Like the same God who said, thou shalt not murder, do not commit adultery, don't worship idols. 
you know, those big sort of commandments, also was like, and make sure that when you get a pledge, don't go into someone's house, wait in the street, they'll bring it out to you. Like, why did he, why is that in there? Why did God give that commandment? I I think it's part of this idea of of generosity, of grace, of benevolence and charity, the, the kind of magnanimous spirit that we are to show toward each other in the body of Christ. And so this matters. Treating somebody with honor. Giving the man the dignity of being the master of his own house, even if he has to go in and get the pledge for you. Like, just give him some dignity, you know? And if you have to take his cloak, if, if he's so poor that the only pledge he has to pay back the loan is his cloak, it says in verse 13, return his cloak by sunset. I mean, don't let the guy sleep on the street without a cloak on. I mean, at least give him a cloak. Yeah, but it's the only pledge I have. Doesn't matter. This is your brother. This is your fellow Israelite. Treat him as a human being and as a brother and a member of the covenant community. Give him his cloak back. I know that's your only pledge. Yeah, but he might not pay back the loan. You know what? Whatever. Just love this person and treat them with dignity. Ennoble them through your giving. Or look at this other text on ennobling. Look at chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Here's another little funny law. It says, when men have a dispute, chapter 25, verse 1, they are to take it to court and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and have him flogged in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. Okay, so some guy's done something wrong, really bad apparently. He has to be beaten, so he lays down and they beat him with a rod or a flog or whatever. Verse 3, but he must not give him more than 40 lashes. If he is flogged more than that, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that even when some guy has done something so wrong that he needs to be you know, punished for it and flogged for it, it's like, don't degrade the poor guy. You know, stop at 40. Which is why the Jews in Paul's day practiced something known as the, the 39 lashes, the 40 minus 1. They wanted to make sure they never hit 40, so they stopped at 39, just in case they missed the count. You know, they didn't want to actually accidentally go over or something. So to keep that law, they had the 39 lashes, which Paul had received a couple times during his gospel ministry. But there's this idea. Even in a hard case where someone deserves judgment and deserves punishment, show him some level of dignity as a human being. It's just really, it's, I find it a fascinating law. It made, you don't have to turn there, but it made me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where... The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth and we're not exactly sure what the situation is there, but it appears that some guy in the church had been kind of like kicked out of the church or disciplined by the church for doing something wrong. We're not sure what. And now it's time to welcome the guy back in. The guy's sorry. He's sorrowful for what he did. And here's what Paul writes to that church. Let me just read it to you from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority... That word majority is interesting. It's, it's almost like a voting word. Like people, the majority decided to punish this member of the church for whatever he did. The punishment inflicted by him on the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So here we have a guy who did something so that the church had to discipline him. And now he's sorrowful and, and it's like, you know, you can see the church like, man, we've had so much nonsense with you. We're done with you. Please, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. No, no, no. Be kind. Be gracious. 
Show him the dignity of a fellow brother in Christ, regardless of whatever it is he did to be thrown out of the church. And, and welcome him back so that he won't sink into despair. There's that kindness that's involved. So no matter what we have to do as a church or as people, no matter if it's a hard situation or a hard conversation or a hard decision to make that may negatively impact others, and maybe justly so, we still have to do it in a way that protects in some level the dignity and the honor of another person. So it needs to be an ennobling liberality, a protective liberality, a proactive liberality, an ennobling liberality. And at the risk of uh, you know, overdoing it here, can I just give you one more? An intentional liberality. Go back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to 22. An intentional liberality. And by this I mean intentionally creating ways, especially in the body of Christ, that we care for each other that everyone is aware of. So, so purposefully doing this. Not just saying, boy, that's a great theory. I hope it happens. But building this into our life together. So look at verse, chapter 24, verse 19. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave the remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. So when you're in harvest time, when you're harvesting your field, you know... You look back and there's a whole little clump there that you forgot. You know, re- resist the, the kind of New England stingy impulse. <laughs> like to be like, oh, oh, I forgot that. You know, got to get every last one. You know, just leave it. Leave those grapes. Leave the extra figs or olives and just let it go. Don't have to get every one. And trust that, that God is going to use that for someone else who needs food, who doesn't have fields. Um, th- there's other laws, too, that aren't right here. But, but you know, like uh, don't harvest the corners of your fields, we find in other laws in the Old Testament. Leave the corners of your fields so that people can come and harvest those. Look at chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. It, it extends beyond harvest time. Chapter Deuteronomy 23:24. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard... You may eat all the grapes you want. What? <laughs> Get out of my vineyard. No. Let him eat. Uh-uh. But do not put any in your basket. So there's limits. There's accountability. This isn't just free-for-all. There's accountability on both sides. The person who's receiving charity isn't supposed to take advantage of it. So don't go around, you know, with a huge basket and take in your friend's grapes. Right? Verse 25, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, ah, but you must not put a sickle to a standing grain. But still, there's that, that generosity that's intentional and built in to the system. And so it's systematized, it's intentional, it's enculturated, it's habitualized in the way that the Israelites treated each other and did things like harvesting. We see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, um, people would bring gifts to the apostles, laid at the apostles' feet, the apostles would take those gifts and distribute it to people in need. It was known this is how you can get gifts to people in the church who are in need. Uh, they had the, the seven. 
uh, perhaps the early deacons in Acts chapter 6, where there were widows who were in need in the church, and there were resources given for the widows who couldn't provide for themselves. And so they appointed seven men who were godly and trustworthy and filled with the Holy Spirit to distribute those gifts to the widows. There was an intentional community-affirmed process for caring for those in need in the body. And we do that too here. Uh, I've had people give me gifts at times, and they say, could you give this to so-and-so? I just don't want them to know who I am. And so I have the fun of walking up to someone and, you know, I'm like Ed McMahon, Publishers Clearinghouse. For those of you who are old enough to remember that, hey, here's $1,000. Like, wow, you know, who gave it to me? doesn't matter. Someone in the church loves you. Like, wow, it's really cool. We also have something called the Deacons Fund. We have deacons in our own church where uh, it's sort of an organized church-wide way so that if you want to bless someone else in the church who's in need, you can give funds to this thing called the Deacon Fund and they can in turn give it to those who are in need in the church. In fact, um, do this little uh, little experiment. Re- reach in your pew rack in front of you. See if you can find one of these white things. This is a giving envelope. And just want to explain it. So if you put money in here, you could say, all right, I want so much money to go to the general fund. General fund is like you know, paying the salaries of staff, keeping the lights on, shoveling the walk in the winter. There's the missions fund that goes to uh, our missionaries. There's the building fund, which goes to actually paying for the, the construction and the mortgage and all that. But then you see the next one down, deacons fund. So if you put like 10 bucks in here, 100 bucks, and you wrote on here 10 bucks for the deacons fund, it would go to a fund where we have a group of deacons that the church has approved. And what they do is when people come and say, hey, I, you know, I've been out of work for 12 months and I don't know if I can make this mortgage payment. And then the deacons say, okay, yeah, sounds legit. All right, well, here you go. This helps you with your mortgage. And I, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years, literally, have flowed from people in our church through the deacons fund into the hands of people that I don't even know who they are. But it just, you know, different times in your life, you're in a pinch, there's a need. And that's how we, we care for each other. One of those intentional ways so let's be intentional too. Maybe you give to the Deacon's Fund. That's, that's one way to do it. Maybe you're like, I'd love to have people over my house at Thanksgiving or three times a year I just want to open up my home and have a cookout for some folks who just might need some encouragement, might be going through some tough times, whatever. But some kind of intentionality so that we care for each other, so that we learn how to be intentionally munificent, intentionally charitable in, in meeting each other's needs. And so let's be liberals, proactive, protective, ennobling, intentional. And just one final thought, and I'll close with this. Let's remember what motivates all of this. It's God's liberality toward us. It's that God has been generous and kind toward us. Look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 22. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Or even go back to to verse 18, Deuteronomy 24, 18. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. Look, Israel, the reason why you have fields and crops and blessings isn't because you're some awesome people. It's because God had mercy on you. You were in slavery in Egypt. And there was nothing special about you for, that God should have rescued you. 
It wasn't like you were a great, awesome nation that didn't deserve to be in slavery. But God in His mercy, in His magnanimous spirit, in His munificent heart, God rescued Israel from Egypt and brought them to the promised land because He is good, not because they were so great. God is kind and generous. And as we've said over and over in Deuteronomy, let's say it again. If that was true of Israel under the Old Covenant, how much more so is it true for those of us who sit under the the great shade tree of blessings in the New Covenant, who sit under the blessings of Christ, who rescued us not from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin, who rescued us from the coming judgment. You know, how much more have we been shown an incredible, breathtaking generosity for, for Jews and Gentiles alike who become members of the New Covenant community in Christ? It's amazing. Think about what God has done for us. Just you know, tell the story to yourself again when you're feeling stingy or bitter or resentful. Remember way back before time when God predestined us to be saved. God chose us to be saved. And it wasn't because God looked down the timeline and said, you know, Jeremy, I can tell when he hears the gospel someday, he's a pretty good guy. He'll figure it out and say yes. No, no. God just sovereignly, freely chose to save some because none would receive the gospel. So God chose. God inaugurated. He he proactively initiated Charity towards sinners. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus came, the Son, and He accomplished our our salvation. On the cross, He shed His blood, which we did not deserve, and He shed His blood to forgive our sins, and He rose from the dead. And not only did the Father predestine and the Son atone for our sins, but the Holy Spirit opened up my thick skull and woke up my hard heart so that I would receive the Gospel. He he made me born again. And because the Holy Spirit made me born again, I was suddenly able to repent and believe in the Gospel. I would never have received the Gospel if the Holy Spirit didn't change my heart first. So the Holy Spirit changes the heart. We repent and believe. And then the avalanche happens. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. I'm adopted into God's family. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God comes alive. I recognize the gift of the Bible. God starts to work in my life. He brings me into the church. The avalanche of spiritual blessings begins to happen. I'm just riding this avalanche. And the best thing is, this is all just a prelude to what God has in store for us. You don't even know what God has in store. You think this building's going to be pretty? Just to see what God's building to see the new creation God has planned. It's almost like the Bible kind of gives up trying to describe it. You know, at some point it's like, well, look, no one's seen it. No one's heard of it. No mind is conceived. You, you just got to see it. So let me just tell you, it's awesome beyond your wildest dreams to be in God's presence forever. We'll just leave it at that. And that's in store still for all those who belong to Christ. And so if you're wrestling with bitterness and unforgiveness... If you're wrestling with a stinginess and an ungodly conservatism, a, a, a stuffed pocket and arms folded kind of attitude, you know, the, the antidote for that is just stand back and look at the scale of God's generosity towards you 
And it's amazing how God will use His grace toward you to push out that ungodly conservatism and fill you with a biblical liberality. Not because we're somehow better people, but because we're amazed at what God has done for us. And in so doing, may God make us more like Christ in His generosity and His kindness to us. Um, I pray that when people walk into this new building, I pray they would not only hear the Gospel faithfully preached every Sunday, but I also hope they'll see the evidence of the Gospel faithfully lived out every Sunday in the way that we love one another. By this, Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us a bunch of liberals. Lord, make us open-hearted and open-handed. We pray that the Gospel would be so real to us that it would affect the way we relate, the way we deal with our finances, the way we deal with our time, that everything would be changed. Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would You push out unholy stinginess and bitterness and resentment? And would You push in Christ-like holiness and love and mercy? Lord, this is heavy lifting. We do not have the spiritual strength to push out and pull in the things that need to be there. So we pray that Your Holy Spirit would do it, that Your Word would change this church. Lord, make us more and more like Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen.